0: This is exactly right. Before we get started on this very fun episode, we have a couple of things that we want to announce. So we recorded this back in November of 2020. And since that time, since we recorded it, there have been two very exciting developments as it pertains to Matt Kandias. Number one is that Matt Candeus is now... Dr. Matt Candeus, PhD. What, Heck
1: what? You yeah. You heard that
0: right. <laughs> he successfully defended his PhD. Woohoo.
1: Congratulations. Thrilling. And number two is that not only did he defend his PhD, but Dr. Candeus wrote a dang book.
0: A whole book while he was hosting an amazing podcast, mm-hmm. while he was working on his dissertation. Uh-huh. I mean, like, that's incredible. And
1: while stuck in quarantine. Like, what? Yeah. It's called In Defense of Plants, An Exploration into the Wonder of Plants, and it's available for pre-order now. It's scheduled to be released on February 16th of 2021. So make sure you put in your pre-order now. I can't wait. I've already ordered two copies.
0: Absolutely. And we will link to it on our website as well.
1: Okay. Now we'll get into the episode.
0: I'm Aaron Welsh. And I'm Aaron Allman Updike.
2: And I'm Matt Candace.
0: Yay! <laughs> <laughs> and this is a very special crossover edition of This Podcast Will Kill You and
2: In Defense of Plants.
0: Uh, what episode are we even covering today? What's the topic? Very stoked to be talking about poison
1: ivy. <gasps> and. Like poison oak and stuff,
0: yeah, oh, okay. yeah, I mean it'll be poison ivy, poison oak, poison sumac, uh lacquer tree, I'm sure lots of other stuff. I am super pumped, um there's a lot more there than I thought in terms of the history. I have already so many questions for both of you too, mm. so, yep, sorry, in advance. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, so t- hopefully to make the question and answer aspect a little bit more, um, palatable, let's talk about the quarantini for this week. Let's do Ooh, it. Oh, let us. So, what are we drinking? <laughs>
1: um, itch cream? Itch cream. <laughs> Inch, itch right? cream. <laughs> itch crème. itch, crème. Sorry. itch creme.
0: Itch creme.
2: Sorry. Creme de itch. Creme
0: de itch. <laughs> well, because it's so appropriate because <laughs> what is in the creme de itch <laughs> well of course
1: many different cremes we have uh creme de cacao mm-hmm. yep and just regular creme which is heavy cream <laughs> and uh an almond liqueur and then some grenadine just to make sure that it looks like what Erin? what's
0: the look that we're going for here I believe, Aaron that we are going for the look of calamine lotion. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. We are. It's not the smell of calamine, which is <laughs> no. maybe a good thing, um, but I kind of like the smell of calamine lotion.
2: It's oddly nostalgic. Okay. Oddly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a little too recent for me, yeah, but it, yeah, it is also nostalgic. <laughs>
2: I swear this quarantini tastes better than it sounds. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it really, it really does. It's a very like 1950s quarantine mm. for sure. Yeah,
2: I'll, mm-hmm. I'll get on board with that.
0: Um, and also, I wonder for those who are dairy-free out there, I would guess that coconut cream or coconut milk would work as well as heavy cream. I bet coconut cream would work really well. I bet it'd be pretty tasty too. Yeah. Hmm. hmm. Well. <laughs> Let us know. Let, Let us, us know. know. Well then. <laughs> Um, Do we have business to take care of before we dive in? I feel like we should, but I don't know if we do. I
1: can't think of any right now. Maybe we'll have to record something and splice it in.
2: (laughs) Behind the scenes. (laughs)
1: Wouldn't be the first time. No, I think, let's just dive right in. I'm really, I can't wait to hear about the history of this. I also always forget that we do these episodes in a different order.
0: I know, I know. Every time. (laughs) Um, This is our first rodeo. It is.
1: The very first time. (laughs) Totally. In our 63rd
0: episode. Or something, yeah. (laughs) Who knows? Okay, well, let's take a quick break first, and then we'll dive into the history. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. I feel like everyone, well, maybe not everyone, but at least a lot of people who have spent any time in U.S. forests have a poison ivy or a poison oak or a poison sumac story. Whether it happened to them or whether it happened to a friend or a cousin, these plants seem to have really left their mark in like a, well, I learned my lesson kind of a way. Like is, there, is there any story that's not like, and that's the last time I'll use an unidentifiable vine as toilet paper? Like,
2: <laughs> right. I know a sad amount of those stories.
0: <laughs> leaves of three, man. Just let, let it them be. be. Let it be. I mean, okay. I have. I'm going to put a pin in that because I have questions about the whole leaves of three thing. But yeah, we'll get well, back deal. to that. salad. <laughs> So my older sister and my mom would get poison ivy rashes like every summer, it seemed, and there would always be cursing about gardening, and the bathtub would be crusty with colloidal oatmeal scum, and then there would be <laughs> smears of pink calamine lotion like on the most unexpected surfaces like doorknobs oh. and like, you know, <laughs> carpet, whatever.
2: <laughs> what kind of upbringing did you... Just
0: kidding <laughs> well well I would just sit there and be unbearably smug because even though I spent most of my childhood playing outside capture the flag or running to get the, <laughs> the soccer ball after it dribbled off into the woods I was always poison ivy free I was like oh. no I'm not affected by poison Ivy you know like it was unbearable I'm sure so yeah that was me until this <laughs> summer oh no and you guys know the story, or at mm-hmm. least like bits of it. I've but seen for the pictures. Our yeah, the pictures are horrific, and I mm-hmm. will post them. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> I'll do like progress pics because I did. <laughs> I took them every day. <laughs> okay, uh, but for our listeners, the long and short of it is that maybe don't brag about being immune to the to the effects of poison ivy um, at all. And also maybe know what the plants look like Bingo. and avoid them.
2: <laughs> Plant ID <laughs> so, 101, start with the ones that can affect you.
0: Yeah, it's a great, that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. This summer, I went to my mom's house in Kentucky for a bit. I helped out with gardening and cleaning up, a, namely around a fire pit, pulling tons and tons of viney plants off the rocks and bushes and then also burning it, Oh, um, no. which could have been a lot worse, I wow. imagine. Yeah. 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 And then a day or two later, everything on my body was itchy. Mm-hmm. Like my, a couple of days after that, my arms, my legs, my torso was absolutely covered in the most painful, itchy rash I've ever experienced. I didn't get any sleep. And I went through like an entire bottle of calamine lotion, legit. And I eventually was in such unbearable discomfort that I had to go to urgent care and they gave me steroids mm-hmm. because oh, I couldn't. Wow. I couldn't just function. Yep. I still have the marks on my arms. Like, this is six months later, Mm -hmm. and it's still there. Uh, Yeah. So anyway, after I came out of the fog of this experience, Mm -hmm. I became super curious about this horrific plant. Uh, Like its history, why on earth my body reacted so badly after years of complacency, and most importantly, to see if it served any ecological purpose so that I couldn't ethically go through my plan of ridding the earth of such a terrible (laughs) substance.
2: (laughs) Please don't. We'll get into that, but please don't.
0: (laughs) Okay. All right. Fine. I knew it. (laughs) I stinking knew it. All right. So (laughs) that's when I texted you guys and was like, can we do an episode on poison and Ivy? Yes, please. Because I don't want to have to do all the reading myself. (laughs) Anyway, okay. Uh, But this episode isn't specifically about poison ivy. It's about the thing in it that causes this rash. Urushiol, which I hope is the right way to say it. There are different pronunciations out there on the internet. It is spelled, in case you are curious, U-R-U-S-H-I-O-L. Erin, I'm sure that you'll talk a lot more about its structure mm-hmm. and its effects, but basically, urushiol is an oily mix of organic compounds, and it can be found in a bunch of different species of plants. Matt, I'll leave it to you to get to those specific numbers. But the human history of urushiol goes back thousands and thousands of years the urushiol-containing sap of the lacquer tree has been used as, like, this hard varnish or lacquer in Chinese, and Korean, and Japanese lacquerware for around 6,000 years. Hmm. So, Whoa. like, a really long time. And it's also, like, been used to coat wood. It's very, very hard and durable. So, super cool. Huh. And the word urushiol actually derives from the Japanese word for the lacquer tree, which is urushi. Huh. And the very first descriptions of the rash caused by exposure to urushiol, they talk about how it appears in lacquer artists on their hands and arms, especially Mm -hmm. those just learning the art. Mm -hmm. And here in North America, poison ivy, poison oak, and poison sumac, these plants were all used by some Native American groups for various purposes, such as dyeing or writing on textiles. So apparently like the sap will be like a dark color that increases in darkness over time and it kind of continues to bleed. It's really interesting. Mm. Like there are pictures of this that you can see. Um, And they were also used as materials for baskets, as medicinal treatments, including possibly hyposensitization, cooking, and also in some religious rites. So there are a bunch of different purposes for which these different urushiol-containing plants were used Mm -hmm. um, in North America prior to... In North America by Native Americans, but the first written descriptions of the irritating effects of the actual poison ivy plant came from none other than John Smith. Huh. Like, huh? Like Pocahontas like and Pocahontas, Jamestown, John Smith. Wow. Yeah. wow. Okay. So he definitely wasn't the first European to observe the effects that the plant had, but he based his observations on someone else's unpublished manuscript, which is mm. cool. Um, no, Just don't do taking
2: credit,
0: <laughs> citing unpublished manuscripts I mean, <laughs> left and right. <laughs> I, he didn't, at least from what I could read. He wasn't like, um. So I discovered this plant. Like he wrote about it as if it had already been known. Mm. Um. So yeah. Anyway, but he wrote that quote. The poisoned weed is much in shape like our English ivy, but being touched causeth redness, itching, and lastly blisters, and Mm. which, howsoever, after a while pass away of themselves without further harm. Mm -hmm. Yet because for the time they are somewhat painful, it hath got itself an ill name, although questionless of no ill nature. huh Huh. yeah okay so he's like these don't mean to do anything it's not that bad like poison, that seems not gonna kill you like come on come on but i mean grow up (laughs) (laughs) and so this description which was written in the 1600s of course kind of sets the tone that a lot of early naturalists took towards the plant they felt that it didn't deserve the name poison But only a few of them dared to suggest that the plants held potential for commercial or medicinal use, despite having observed some Native American groups using the plants in these various ways. Mm -hmm. So throughout much of the 1600s and 1700s, the Urushiol-producing plants of North America didn't receive much attention from the botanists or naturalists, mostly just being written about as a curiosity. I do want to read like a couple of excerpts from this description of poison ivy from the early 1700s naturalist Paul Dudley of Massachusetts. Oh, uh, yes, Dudley. Okay. Mr. Dudley. <laughs> I have no idea who he is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Okay, so here's here's a little bit of this description. Okay. So, The inside of the wood is yellow and very full of juice, as glutinous as honey or turpentine. Mm. The wood itself has a strong unsavory smell, but the juice stinks as bad as carrion. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The juice. The juice. Um, okay, a little bit more. First, it must be observed that it poisons two ways, either by touching or handling it or by the smell, for the scent of it when cut down in the woods or, or on the fire has poisoned persons to a very great degree. Mm. Um, and then he talks about how it only affects some people, for I have seen my own brother not only handle it but chew it without any harm at all, which is horrifying to think of. <laughs> Absolutely horrifying. Um And then the third thing that he mentions is that this sort of poison is never mortal and will go off in a few days of itself, like the sting of a bee. But generally, the person applies plantain water or salad oil, which is olive oil, and cream.
2: Huh, okay.
0: And then he talks about how his neighbor, who was so badly affected by it, said that from this point on, he will always remember the touch of poison ivy because it is as cold as a piece of ice. And he could distinguish it, whether blindfold or in the dark, Hmm. from any other wood in the world. And so in that description, there were a few mentions of remedies like salad oil and cream. But I also saw recommended uh, to rub a mixture of charcoal and hogs lard on the affected areas. Okay. Could have worked. Who knows? Um, I don't know if it would smell great. And um, of course, you know, to throw back to our quarantini, calamine. Mm -hmm. So... I was like, well, what is calamine lotion? Good What's question. the history of calamine lotion? Two histories for the price of one here, Erin? S- I mean, this is, this is literally like a sentence, but yes, let's go with that. <laughs> uh, I did a tiny bit of digging because it's ki- it was kind of hard to find a lot of like substantial information, but it goes way back. So calamine lotion, it's that pink liquidy, liquidy lotion used to treat all kinds of itchy things. It's supposed to dry out the skin and relieve the itch that way. It's made of zinc oxide and ferric oxide. And <laughs> oh. I found a mention in one book that calamine lotion has been used as far back as 1500 BCE Whoa. in ancient what? Egypt. Whoa. Yeah. So yeah. wait.
1: is it how is it different like, than like sunscreen?
0: Like
2: Yeah, isn't like zinc and all that and sunscreen too? Yeah. I don't know.
0: I mean, so <gasps> zinc oxide and ferric oxide, and then there are some other things in there like phenol and stuff. I can't remember okay. what else is in there. It's like, but the zinc oxide and ferric oxide are the two active ingredients. That's wild. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, Aaron, maybe you can tell us whether it does anything. Do you want me to just spoilers? It. De- I mean, yeah, it helps the itch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. I mean, <laughs> dang it. <laughs> I was listen. holding out for that. n of one that's me um yes i can attest to that that it did help tremendously (laughs) i was coded okay uh anyway okay a little
2: pink air and run into the woods
0: (laughs) during this time unless you were living in areas where these plants flourished you probably didn't know of its existence Mm -hmm. unless you were like a super enthusiastic botanist like matt
2: Mm, right indeed
0: And, in which case, you could even get some seeds and have them grow in your own garden, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what people did. Poison ivy and poison sumac were grown in the English royal Gardens at Kew, the gardens of the mm-hmm. Faculty of Medicine in Paris, and also in the gardens of the Empress Josephine Bonaparte That's red, huh? yeah, good that's for them cool good for them, yeah. Good for them. (laughs) It never reached super popularity status for reasons you can probably guess. Mm -hmm. Um, But it did earn a super fan in the late 1700s by the name of Andre de Fresnoy. He was an army physician and a professor of medicine. And so during this time in Western medicine, a lot of medicinal treatments were derived directly from plants. And basically, if a plant produced some sort of strong effect on the human body after contact or ingestion it was thought okay in smaller doses this could be helpful and mm-hmm. this fine line between medicine and poison is something that we've definitely touched on yeah. in all of our poison crossover episodes so like rice and belladonna wolfsbane this two-facedness of these compounds and so it totally makes sense that poison ivy and other related plants were looked at for their potential in medicine this guy de didn't start off as the world's biggest poison ivy fan. He was giving a lecture about various medicinal plants, which included poison ivy, and he was talking about the painful and itchy sores that it could cause. And there was some young dude in the audience who was like, all right, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. And so after the lecture, he went up and was like, can I have some of those leaves? I'm going to I'm gonna see if this actually causes the horrible blisters you said it will. Oh, um, And it did. It <laughs> horrible, horrible, painful, itchy blisters all over his hand and wrist. And he probably regretted his choice a little bit. But when the swelling finally went down, he noticed that an old sore that had been on his wrist for ages had finally disappeared. Mm. And so he went back to Defresnoy and was like, oh, my gosh, this old sore disappeared. I'm pretty sure that the poison ivy treated it. And so Defresnoy was like, I've discovered the next big thing in medicine. So he started like cultivating this thing like crazy. He began prescribing poison IVT, which he personally tested out and noted, oh, it only causes mild stomach irritation and increased sweat and increased urine production. Oh, great. I don't need to
2: sweat anymore.
0: I don't think that would be a good idea. I'm horrified to think of drinking poison IVT, but don't do it. Yeah, don't.
2: Also, yeah. I do want to rub poison ivy on anyone at a, a Q&A that says really a comment more than a question, but I digress. <laughs> oh, my God.
0: Love that. Ah, <laughs> oh, Beautiful. <laughs> so he Defresnoy was still somehow encouraged by what he was seeing. So he claimed it could cure anything from skin maladies to paralysis. Whether he actually did any controlled trials is not Mm-mm. known. And he was just making stuff <sighs> up. <Yeah>. Highly <laughs> unlikely. Yeah, I'm going to go on a limb he probably didn't. <laughs> yep. <laughs> But that didn't stop him from lovingly cultivating more and more and more of the plants and sending them to his botanist friends. And his love for poison ivy nearly got him killed, actually. Oh, dear. Not by the plant, um, but for political reasons. So he had sent some plants to one of his friends because his friends wanted to, or his friend wanted to, like, cultivate it. And then he wrote a follow up letter to ask how the plants were doing, saying, yeah. How are our dear Rus, like R H U S, because that was the, the genus back in the day. In the day how I long to see them. Oh, dear. And unfortunately for Defresnoy, the letter got intercepted and the authorities accused him of working with the Russians, which like Ruses. Oh, yep. wow. Yep. But eventually he was like, no, no, I'm just a plant nerd. I really didn't mean it.
2: <laughs> Thinking of all the times I've almost no. been politically assassinated.
0: <laughs> I mean, I really feel like it might it's a dangerous profession. Oh. Uh, so he, he, he explained himself out of it. And sadly, his poison ivy garden didn't outlive him by very much. After he died, his pharmacist brother dug up all of the plants and destroyed them like these are terrible things yeah to hell with this He's garden like, look i know about drugs and yeah. this is not we're not doing <laughs> yes. it. we have
2: medicine now bud <laughs> i like
0: think it was described as his skeptical pharmacist brother <laughs> like, what, a, what a skeptic uh, and urushiol producing plants never did really seem to find another champion for their use in medicine. But beginning in the early 20th century, there was increasing attention paid to this group of poisonous plants as a whole. Botanists reclassified the plants from the genus Roos to the genus Toxicodendron, while chemists began trying to pin down exactly what it was about these plants that caused such irritation – in the early days of germ theory, some researchers floated the idea that it was actually pathogenic microbes in the plant that caused the horrible reaction in humans. It was actually an infection. Um, and the when that was shown not to be true, um, I kind of love the enthusiasm for microbes. So it was just like Me too. Yeah. Microbes solve everything. Like every question we've ever had, it's microbes. Like
1: I really I think that's adorable and I really like it.
0: <laughs> uh, but yeah, it wasn't true. And then people were like, okay, maybe it's a volatile oil exuded by the plant into the air, or maybe it's a carbohydrate. But finally, the mystery was solved in the 1920s when the Japanese scientist Riko Majima described the exact chemical structure of the toxin, which is really a mix mm. of organic compounds, like I mentioned earlier. And mm-hmm. he named it urushiol. And from what I can tell, poison ivy and other Erucial producing plants have never really stood front and center in academic research, although there does seem to be lots of comparative studies with other organic irritating compounds, as well as some research into detecting tiny amounts of erucial using UV light. But Poison Ivy did earn its place in popular culture with the song Poison Ivy by The Coasters recorded in 1959. Do you guys know the song?
2: Classic. No, I have no <laughs> idea. I've never heard that before. Are you
0: serious? We yeah, used to no. sing this. I think cuz my mom was so badly affected by Poison Ivy all the time, this was like a family favorite. I feel very <laughs> it, it
2: weird that you sing it for for you, us? <laughs> did not stick with you apparently.
0: Maybe I would know it. Okay, I'm not going to sing it because I won't Ugh. subject people to that. However, I will read a few of the lyrics. Okay. Oh, okay. okay, this is from the middle of the song. But you should go and listen but to I it. But I need
1: to know how it goes if I know to know if I know it. Because you know I'm right, bad yeah, at Right, Yeah, that's true. And Maybe stuff. I
2: have heard this. Come on. Okay. I've heard you, Can you do just karaoke. Sing it a little?
0: Come on. <laughs> I'm so apologetic for that now and forever, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um you'll have to just you'll have to look it up. It's <sighs> worth it, I promise. Okay. 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 Measles make you bumpy, and mumps will make you lumpy, and chicken pox will make you jump and twitch. Yeah, no, I do yeah, not know this song. never come across this, <laughs> one. this sounds like a very Kentucky thing. <laughs> this is not a Kentucky thing. I listened to this when I was in Florida, okay? When I was a child in Florida. How dare you? <laughs> okay, returning to it. A common cold of fool ya, and a whooping cough can cool ya, but poison ivy lord'll make you itch. You're going to need an ocean of calamine lotion. You'll be scratching like a hound the minute you start to mess around. And then it goes, poison ivy, poison ivy. Late at night when you're sleeping, poison ivy comes a-creeping around. You don't know that? Wow. No. Late at night when you're I, sleeping, you know why? poison ivy comes a-creeping. Oh, she did it.
2: Yes. <laughs> it's because two of us in this room have not grown up south of the Mason-Dixon line. <laughs>
0: Oh, <laughs> my gosh. Okay. Well. We don't
2: have the kind of folk music in New England or California that you do. This is not a flag. That's not a slight. That is not a slight against you, but we didn't We'd have. We missed out. We didn't Clearly. have Dizzy. This is like, like, like big
0: time. pre-surf rock is what I would describe it as. It's like Buddy Holly-esque uh measles makes you bumpy chicken pox makes
1: you lumpy yeah. that doesn't sound like i swear okay surf rock let's
0: let's honestly right now the three of us need to take a pause and we need to all go to youtube and type in poison ivy okay we're doing it <laughs> we're doing it wow i was just jamming on that for way too long i missed everything I watched, that you guys I saw. said oh. <laughs> I,
2: I think you need to get the rights to be able to use that in this episode
0: yeah I would love to do that. I mean, is it not a great song?
2: No, that's great. And and I take back everything I said about it being a Southern Diddy. That is totally exactly Buddy Holly era updo. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Um, I loved the song and um however, however, according to the songwriters, it's not about Russial. It's not about poison ivy. It's about a a girl named Poison Ivy? Well, kind of. It's about an STI that you get from a girl.
2: (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs)
0: Late at night when you're sleeping, Poison Ivy comes a creep and a rat.
2: And it it says you can look, but do not touch?
0: Yep, you'll be scratching like a hound the minute you start to mess around. So what's it about? Crabs? It's about crabs? Well, so the songwriter said the clapper gonorrhea.
2: I thought those burned.
1: What? Okay, yeah. they should listen to our episode.
0: That that doesn't – that's not consistent with the symptoms. I mean, it was the 1950s. Do you really think messaging on STIs was on point? <laughs> <laughs> this is how they had to get the info out.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh. Okay. And, of course, wow. you know, in addition to that amazing song, there's also the Batman character Poison Ivy mm-hmm. and a movie titled Poison Ivy about a murdering teen – Basically, like, it became sort of the second code for an evil woman or, like, a sneaky, evil, you know, villainous woman. But speaking of murder, I have one last story to tell you before passing Ooh. the mic. Ooh. Okay. So I definitely remember talking about an assassination attempt with Rison in that episode. Yep. Mm-hmm. And a murder in, I think, the Belladonna episode about the guy who murdered his wife in the garden he like served her gin and tonic or something right oh yeah 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 Yeah. um so i wanted to continue that really depressing trend (laughs) awesome (laughs) okay i found a news story forgive me but i googled poison ivy murder and i found a news story
2: (laughs) i don't forgive you i
0: found a news story about a baltimore county woman named roxanne amick who was found murdered in 2006 And her body was discovered in a wooded area that was absolutely teeming with poison ivy plants. Oh, no. Detectives immediately suspected her husband, Michael Amick, because it's always the husband. It's always Mm -hmm. the husband. But also because his arms were completely covered in poison ivy. And there Mm -hmm. there was other circumstantial evidence, but that was like one Mm -hmm. of their key Ah. points of evidence in the trial. Um, Uh But also, they weren't able to charge him for 10 years, because they wanted to wait until they got better physical evidence. And so that's, for for some reason, that's, it took them, in 2006. 2006? What? And so they finally got better DNA evidence, and he was finally convicted of second degree murder in 2018. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the very odd and jumbled history <laughs> of Poison Ivy. <laughs> all
2: right. All right. Not at all what I was um, expecting.
0: Um, it doesn't quite have the same, like, you know, Janice, two-faced character nature as some of the other poisons that we've covered. But it has mm-hmm. inspired great pop songs. An annual Poison Oak show in California that I forgot to mention
2: yeah since show? like the night since
0: 1982 they have like wreaths and stuff
2: show um, well, a show for that i never that. knew that a show okay. a show yeah i yep. i want to meet the people that go to that show
1: <laughs> is it not like you are you no not i would people? not i
2: would not personally <laughs> not my jam but i'll talk to them
0: uh, <laughs> uh, i would like to go and just like wear a full body
2: <laughs> tyvek I suit know,
0: biohazard suit yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm so scared of poison ivy now yeah. okay erin <laughs> please tell us what on earth this plant does to us oh, i am thrilled
1: to do so but i'll take a quick break first okay poison ivy poison oak poison sumac etc i'm really excited and i won't tell you why yet but we'll get to the point why i'm really excited to talk about this today but first i have to give a huge shout out to this one paper that i found it was by gladman in 2006 it was like a single author paper which like never happens anymore but it honestly was so comprehensive and straightforward and laid out all of the basics of what somebody would want to know about the biology of poison ivy. And I haven't found a paper like that in a very long time. So I <laughs> really want to give them a big shout out. Yeah. Thank you so much. It made this research journey a lot simpler. Um, so I will obviously link to that. Okay, so the compound, like you already mentioned, Erin, that is found... In all of these plants that causes us such distress is urushiol. Let's go with that. Good job. <laughs> so urushiol is, like you mentioned, Erin, it's an amalgamation of organic compounds. It's a phenolic lipid compound, okay? That basically just means it's made up of fatty acids and a phenol ring, which is like one of those six carbon rings, Okay. And then the different specific forms of urushiol that are found in different species of plant differ in their carbon side chains, which are called like catechols, I think. I vaguely
2: remember that.
1: Yeah. Please don't ask me any more organic chemistry (laughs) questions than that, because even that was a challenge for me. Okay. So what it means for us. Let's let's focus now back on like the biology side of this. The chemical that poison ivy produces, this urushiol, it's a resin. You kind of already mentioned this Aaron. So it's an oily substance and what's important, and Matt, I know you'll talk more about this, this is a compound that's contained within the plant tissues itself. It's not something that's excreted by the plant. So you have to have damage to the plant to actually release this compound. Is that right, Matt? Yeah,
2: correct. Totally.
1: Okay. So if you just like touch an intact leaf just by like gently brushing it, you're not likely to come in contact with urushiol, Right.
2: Yeah, that's my favorite thing to do in my floristics class is to touch the leaf and go, What is this? <laughs> throws them.
1: And they're like, Wah. Yeah, they're like, oh, right. I don't know. But if you're like pulling weeds, Aaron, <laughs> or bushwhacking, or cleaning brush out of your mom's
0: yard, Erin, <laughs> you're going to be exposed. Okay. Yeah. I am exposed right now, actually, <laughs> yes. by
2: all of this. So exposed. Very,
0: <laughs> very pointed language. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Some other things that are
1: important about this oil It's non-volatile So it doesn't just like dissipate into the air Like say ethanol or something like that But It does dry very quickly Onto surfaces And once it's dried It maintains its antigenic properties Which means That like if a deer came by And munched on a bunch of poison ivy Do deer eat poison ivy? Oh yeah Yeah Okay, I thought so, but I just made things up. So <laughs> if a deer came by and munched a bunch of poison ivy, so a bunch of urushiol was released and dried, and then you brushed past that vine, well, now you can be exposed, okay? Mm-hmm. And what's important is that as little as two milligrams of urushiol can cause a reaction. I Whoa. have no idea how much a plant produces.
2: A lot more than that. <laughs> okay, that's what I guess. <laughs> <Dear>. A lot. <laughs>
1: And uh, like you mentioned, Aaron, it can be aerosolized in the smoke, and then it can actually affect like your respiratory tract. So that's like pretty serious. Um, it's estimated that anywhere from like 50 to 75% of the U.S. adult population is sensitive. And this goes, really, it's across all ages. It's just by the time you get to adulthood, it's about 50 to 75%. Hmm. And there's some thought that like maybe there's a genetic link because if you have two parents that are both sensitive, you have like an 80% chance of being sensitive, but it also depends a lot on exposure. So let's talk about the exposure, shall we? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. And then I have a question.
1: Oh, (laughs) do you want to ask it now?
2: Yeah, actually, it'll probably be better if I do that now for everyone listening. So dad, my dad, Mm -hmm. not Mm -hmm. sensitive to it. my mom extremely sensitive to it when Mm -hmm. she was like i'll just say many months pregnant for me she was doing what aaron was doing weeding in the garden sweating going like this wiping it all over and there is the most tragic picture of her like i'm guessing like eight months pregnant for me uh in a chair covered in calamine and just Blistery crustiness, just looking very sad. And I'm wondering, <gasps> I am not sensitive to it. Is it the genetic component from my dad not being sensitive? Or did I get some weird antibody resistance from being in the womb when my mom was
1: fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating question, Matt. Thank you. What an interesting question. Basically, I'm going to I'm going to. I'm not gonna guess. This Fair isn't enough. a full guess. This is an educated guess
2: <laughs> i'll take it i'll take it
1: uh based on what i know about the pathophysiology which we're about to get into it's you just you got lucky uh, yes. this is not from your mom's
0: exposure okay <laughs> um i yeah i have a, a question for matt it's actually more of a comment um just uh, i'm
2: gonna rub poison ivy on you <laughs> No, no, no uh, go ahead.
0: My question was, do you think your mom would be willing to share that photo?
2: Ooh, uh, for me, her boy, probably. But if she knew <laughs> how many people might see it, I'll, I won't tell her that, and I'll just get her to share it with me. How's my that sound? Tell
1: <laughs> her, Matt. No, you I'll tell her. I wouldn't do that to her. I wouldn't do that
2: to my mom. No, I'll ask. I'll try. I'll try. I love her to death, and I don't want to take advantage of her, but she'll probably share it. <laughs>
0: It sounds like an amazing picture. It does. <laughs> it's
2: it's so tragic. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, tragic. Everyone,
0: everyone send us your worst poison ivy pictures. Oh, gosh. Yes, please do. Yeah, we'll start a thread on like Twitter or Insta or something. <laughs> like
2: do it on Reddit okay. so it can get weird.
0: Oh,
1: good idea. Good idea. Okay, so listen, let's talk about how this happens because this is the part, you guys, that I'm really excited about. <laughs> yeah, okay. This stoked. is the moment. This is the moment. Okay. And the reason I'm so excited is because we get to talk about hypersensitivity reactions, which I think are so fun and interesting. Okay. All right. So clinically, the rash that you get from poison ivy, everyone knows it causes a rash. Okay. (laughs) right? If you don't, we'll talk about it in a minute. So don't worry. Um, The rash that you get from poison ivy, it's called an allergic contact dermatitis. Okay. So from that, we already know a lot. It's inflammation in your skin, dermatitis. You get it from contact with the plant. We already talked about that, but it's caused by an allergic reaction to the plant. What the heck is an allergic reaction? Ooh, fun. Okay. There are four different types of hypersensitivity reactions, okay? Types one through four. Recently, they were updated so that actually types two and four both have multiple subtypes, but we're just going to go with one, two, three, (laughs) and four, okay? I won't tell. Thank you. And all hypersensitivity reactions have to do, at least in part, with antibodies being formed to something- that stimulates an immune response which is that's like what antibodies are supposed to do we talked a lot about that in our vaccines episode but in the case of hypersensitivity reactions the amount of immune response that ends up being generated is ott over the top oh, for some reason Is
2: that a medical acronym? No.
1: That's what I was like Love Island. <laughs> Okay. And that causes a problem in and of itself. Okay. So I'm going to very, very briefly go through the four types and then we're going to focus on the one that causes allergic contact dermatitis, AKA poison ivy. Okay. Cool. So type one is an IgE, which is a specific type of antibody. You have like IgG, IgM. So IgE, mediated reaction, is type 1. And this is what you probably think of when you think an allergic reaction, okay? So like anaphylactic shock, that's Ah. type 1, okay? okay? So like shellfish allergy, peanut allergy, that kind of thing. Even like hives that you get, okay? These are – basically what happens is this type of antibody binds to these cells called mast cells and they release a whole bunch of histamine and then boom, you get a massive inflammatory reaction, okay? Mm -hmm. That's type 1, classic allergies. Type 2 is called a cytotoxic or IgG or IgM. So it's a different type of antibody response. And it causes things like autoimmune hemolytic anemia, which is a type of anemia where your red blood cells go boom. Um, Also, (laughs) good pasture syndrome, which is a kidney disease. Okay. Uh, And so this is like, you know, antibodies that are directed against our cell membranes. Uh, And then type 3 is what's called an immune complex mediated response. So it's the same type of antibodies as in type 2, IgG or IgM. But basically what happens is these these antibodies kind of glom onto each other and then deposit places that they shouldn't and then make you sick. So that's like a more complicated mm, one. Okay. So something like serum sickness, if you've ever heard of that, that's a type oh, 3 response.
0: Okay.
1: And then we get to type 4. Okay.
0: (laughs) We're there. We're finally
1: here. So the allergic contact dermatitis caused by urushiol is a type 4 hypersensitivity reaction. This is called a delayed or a T-cell mediated response. And if you want to know like the specifics, it's a type 4A response. Okay. Mm. (laughs) So how does this one work? Okay. It's a little bit different than all the others. Exciting. So the first time that you're exposed to poison ivy oils, the catechols, which are part of that urushiol compound, they bind to and penetrate through your skin cells, okay? And then with, like, underneath the surface of your skin, they bind to the surface of these cells that are called antigen-presenting cells. In your skin, these are often called Langerhans cells, And their job is to internalize antigens, process them, and then travel back to our lymph nodes and present those antigens to T-cells. Okay, Basically, and that's like a normal thing that they would do. Okay. That's like, that's their job. They're an antigen presenting cell. So they travel back to your lymph node and they go, hey, T-cells, I found this stuff and I think it might be bad. I don't know what to do. I'm leaving this for you. And the T cells are like, great. Thank you so much. hands, appreciate it. Thanks for bringing it. Um, we're just going to make a bunch of copies of it. We'll be on the ready. We'll have like a big army of cells back here just whenever we need it. Okay. We, we got you. And that's exactly what happens. So Urushiol causes a large amount of these T cells to be made kind of at the ready. And they just hang out in our body until the next time. That you're exposed. Mm.
0: So on subsequent Uh,
1: contact with the rushyol, those T-cells happen to come in and they're like, oh, hey, I recognize this. (gasps) Call in the army. Right? And then they immediately get to work destroying skin cells. So killing cells wherever they find this antigen. Wow. And then also like upregulating your immune response, releasing all these other immune modulators that produce things like vasodilation to help increase blood flow, so you get further inflammation. And then you also have a response in your skin cells themselves, which are called your keratinocytes, that further this inflammatory response. They release more cytokines, they increase inflammation, and it's like this feedback
2: loop. Huh.
0: Cool? Um, Yeah. Well. That's wild. Also, horrible, but yes. Yeah, fascinating.
2: So they're 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 recognizing it as something bad and trying to do everything possible to kind of like nuke that site.
1: Exactly. And wow. it's like the first time that your body is exposed to it, you just like make these T cells, these memory T cells and they're just there, like just to have on hand. Right. And so that's part and because it's T cells that are being made and not just antibodies. Okay. We're not just making antibodies against this compound. Mm -hmm. You're making T cells that are going to be able to come in. And so because of that, this is a delayed type response because it's not like you're just immediately binding antibody and then like, you know, decimating things right there. Like these T cells are not everywhere all the time. There's like a Mm. certain number of them that might be present in your body, and then they just have to happen to come into contact with that urushiol the second time. Does that make sense? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's why what the symptoms of this look like is that it's a delay after exposure. Okay? Mm -hmm. So generally around two days, about 24 to 48 hours, but usually about 48 hours after exposure, that's when you first start to see the symptoms of poison ivy
2: cool dang that's awesome so,
1: yeah so we can talk a little bit more specifically about the symptoms although aaron i feel like you, <laughs> you covered- told us them
0: uh, pretty well <laughs> blister the itching pain don't run yeah. your arm or rash under hot water even though it feels really good because it's horribly miserable afterwards oh that like it feels bad. insanely like like such relief during it? During yeah. during the hot water. And then, and then after. And then after you're like,
2: well, cool. I learned that lesson <laughs> oh, with bug dear. bites. Yeah. It's the, yeah. It came back to bite me.
0: Yeah. Oh. Oh. Uh, um, but I'm, I'm curious to know like more of the other, like especially the smoke inhalation. Well, symptoms. so let's talk about
1: kind of the general symptoms and what happens. And then yeah. I think we'll be able to understand what could happen if you get Um, if you inhale it, okay? Yeah, yeah. So like I said, usually around two days. It can vary quite a lot. Um, I think two weeks is like the highest end of when you could potentially still have symptoms after exposure. And at the low end, it could be like a number of hours. You first get areas of redness. So it gets just kind of red. And then you would get some small Bumps, they usually start out as bumps. And even just this redness and bumps are super, super, super itchy. Super itchy. And then over time, those small bumps develop into vesicles, which are basically like if you think of what a chickenpox rash kind of looks like, little clear fluid filled bumps. So these bumps like fill with fluid. And when it gets really bad, like What Aaron had. They can get all the way into what are called bulla. I think that's how you say it. Or bullae. I don't know how you actually say it. Which are ginormous fluid-filled blisters. Like kind of confluent. Like your whole arm could be one giant fluid-filled blister. And if you get severe reactions, these bullae can get really, really large. You can get really severe swelling or edema because of how much inflammation you're having just under the skin. Oh,
2: wow. And it's
1: incredibly uncomfortable. So... If you inhale it, then that exact same inflammatory reaction is happening in your respiratory tract because the epithelia, so the the cells that lie in your respiratory tract are not very different from your skin cells.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh.
1: So the reaction is going to be essentially the same, except huh. that it's a small space and so there's no room for inflammation to happen. So
2: you could like close off your respiratory tract.
0: Oh that's horrible.
2: I have heard <laughs> of people dying from that.
1: Yeah. Right the the other thing that can happen if you inhale it is that it can kind of more and I'm not exactly sure the pathophysiology of this specifically but it can cause a more generalized dermatitis as well where you get like that inflammatory reaction across your whole body rather than only where mm. you were exposed huh weird right it sounds awful yeah, yeah no good um Without any treatment at all, it's a long course of disease. It's anywhere from like three to six weeks to completely resolve, which is a very long time to be miserable.
2: Yeah, no thanks.
1: Yeah. There are a couple of other really uncommon things that you can get. There's something that's called black spot dermatitis, which causes like something that kind of can look a little bit like a melanoma, like literally like a black oh, um, sure. mark on your skin that oh, is often permanent. But what I don't know about this is whether that, it's not painful from what I understand. Huh. Like it's just something that can happen as a result, but it's pretty uncommon. And then also what's really uncommon is you can get something called erythema multiform, which you can get from Other things as well, but it's like widespread, super itchy bumps that can kind of come up all over your body, not just where you came into contact. So this would be like on top of just having this hypersensitivity, your body's going like, well, let's go full-fledged and like everywhere.
0: I, I, cause I, I have heard about sort of like the rash spreading, which I know it's not contagious because like the oil you wash off your body. But mm-hmm. I I also heard that the rash can spread in the way that it's just like an inflammatory response.
1: Do you want to know a little more about it? I do. I, I
2: desperately do. <laughs> Mostly because of the faces you're making. <laughs>
1: You are, you're totally right, Erin. It's not contagious. And like the fluid that's in those vesicles, it doesn't have any antigen in it. Okay. So uh. you shouldn't open up blisters because you should not open up blisters. But <laughs> if you did like accidentally scratch open those blisters, you're not going to spread the rash by like itching it or anything like that. And you're not going to give it to anybody else. However, the oil itself can dry on surfaces and remain antigenic. So if you got the oil on your clothes or under your nails and then you itch it, you can spread it.
0: Or if it's on your dog's fur. If it's on your
1: dog. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs)
0: Exactly.
2: Shout out to my friend Amy.
1: Yeah. And so that's why sometimes you can get new lesions like a few weeks after initial onset. If it's just still somewhere, whether it's your clothes, your dog, your nails, whatever. Yeah. You can then continue to spread it. Yeah. Aye.
2: Didn't that happen to our dear friend Sam from a chair that she sat on that had, she sat on it with like poison ivy pants and then continued to sit on the chair?
0: Yes. Oh no.
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh gosh. Awful.
0: It's horrible.
1: Yep. And then, like you said, Erin, washing it off, turns out that only helps if you do it, like, right away. Right away. Within 30 yeah. minutes, yeah. pretty much yeah. any oil that you've come in contact with has been absorbed. So. Yep. <laughs> and there's at least some research that suggests that using soap can actually spread the oil a little mm-hmm. bit further. Oh, good. So just washing it off with water, um, if you can, like, if you, you're you like, oh, no, I just touched poison ivy, as quick as you can, wash it off with just water. um that can be
0: helpful. So the best bet really is just learn what the plant looks like and avoid it.
1: Avoid it. Um,
0: There have been, what's
1: really interesting in researching this is that I have found that there are a few um, barrier creams that exist that are supposedly effective at preventing a reaction, but um, some of them maybe actually make it Worse, <laughs> so well, um, okay. I'm not sure, and they're not ones that I had ever heard of, so I'm not sure how widely available they really are., um, but dial ultra, which is like dishwashing soap, oh, yeah, as well as a couple other like soaps and one of these like very specific creams I've never heard of, um seem to help prevent the rash even after you've been exposed. So it's not like they're, it's not washing the oil off your skin, but somehow it's helping to prevent the rash. I don't know. It's worth a try. Dial is cheap. So this is not an ad. Yeah. Um, But otherwise treatment, like you said, Erin, colloidal oatmeal baths, um, calamine lotion. And then if it gets really bad, like what you had, oral steroids are really the the thing that you need. Um, Topical steroids can be helpful, but topical, you need like high, pretty high dose and you can only use those on certain parts of your body and only for a certain amount of time. So they're not all that helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, Antihistamines, this isn't a histamine response, guys, Uh, because that's a type one hypersensitivity reaction. I just learned that. (laughs) So that's
0: why antihistamines aren't super helpful in this case. Unless like for me, it it helped me sleep. Before I got yes. before I was like resorted to steroids, but within like a few hours of steroids, it, everything was better. Like oh, it was good. unbelievable. I'm I'm so
2: glad. Well, that that's you good. Finally I'm went glad to the doctor.
0: Yeah, I know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Are you stubborn like I am?
0: I'm very stubborn. Mm-hmm. I'm very bad about about being like accepting any sort of vulnerability and
2: in, yeah, yeah. In,
0: phys- in my physical body. It's bad, real bad. I
2: feel you. I feel you.
0: Um. I have questions. Oh, oh have gosh. For questions. me or yeah. for Matt? For you, Erin? Oh gosh. Okay. okay. So first of all, 50 to 70% of people are sensitive. Yep. Why? Oh. What is the difference between sensitivity and insensitivity? It's a really good question and it's not clear because
1: it's across it's across all ages, it's across ethnicities, it's across races, it's across like everything. It's Anyone could be sensitive. So in large part, it's probably exposure. Is – are 100% of adults in the U.S. exposed? No, definitely Mm. not. Um, So would it be 100% if everyone was exposed a certain number of times? I don't know. I don't know. Um, But Hmm. it's a very interesting question that I could not fully find the answer to as to, like, what is it that makes one person specifically more sensitive than another person? Um, like you, Erin, you went so much of your life not being sensitive, and it's not like you were only exposed twice in your life, right? Right. No. So I think a lot of it is repeated exposure. So people who have occupational exposures are at much higher risk of being sensitive if they're constantly coming in contact with it.
0: Well, and that brings yeah. me to another question of about hypo So, like, can you actually? become desensitize yourself
1: so desensitization has not been shown to be effective for poison ivy the way it is for like bee stings and things like that
0: okay Um, which is really interesting well that leads me to thinking a lot (laughs) a lot of other questions but i think that this is where i need to direct them to matt so
2: (laughs) fair enough (laughs)
0: phew thank goodness because i know
1: my answers are just like (laughs) maybe (sighs) matt what the heck tell us all about it okay but let's take a quick break first
2: So we've covered a lot of ground in this episode, but let's talk about the plants. And this is where things get really interesting. And this is why I always say it, but it's so true. I love doing crossovers because I learn so much. You send me down these weird, interesting roads, and they're never as simple or as straightforward of a narrative as I hope they are, or I think they are. (laughs) I shouldn't say hope. I usually hope for more interesting things. And this is what we found. So let's back up. We talk a lot about poison ivy and poison oak. And to some extent, poison sumac, because these are plants that people, at least here in North America, have a chance of running into, having encounters with, whether gardening or hiking or doing anything out there. But if you back up for a second and look at the family that these plants belong to, Anacardiaceae, do you know what common food that you've probably all eaten to some degree or another? Yes, mango. But the, the, the name of this family is very specific to something that you would eat, say, in trail mix.
1: Peanut. peanut. Not peanut. Sunflower seed.
2: Nope.
1: M- M&M's. Grapes. It's,
2: it's very popular. You were closer with peanut and it's very popular in some Asian foods.
1: Cashews. Cashew. Yes. Oh, cashews. cashews. Oh, cashew nuts.
2: Yes. So the group of plants we're talking about all come from what they call the cashew family, Anacardiaceae. And Anacardiaceae, I would normally not use the common name, but the etymology of Anacardiaceae literally means upward heart which is in complete reference to the seed of the cashew apple which if you've yeah. ever seen if you've ever been to central or south America and seen a cashew growing a cashew is a small nut attached to the bottom of a large apple-like structure yeah called the cashew apple and that's what they're referring to with this so Anacardiaceae is a large family of plants that's found all over the globe We happen to know a lot of the temperate representatives, but if you've ever eaten mangoes or pistachios, you have also eaten members of this family. Now, urushiols are present in about a third of the family. So this is not something that's unique to any of the ones that we're familiar with. This is something that the family's pretty well known for. And I actually recently, I'll probably be releasing the episode in conjunction with this one, uh, spoke with the Deputy Executive Director of the United States Botanical Garden, Dr. Susan Pell, who just happens to have devoted her entire career to understanding this family of plants. And it's absolutely fascinating. Yes.
1: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. We should have listened to that episode in prep for this, Matt.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I was so happy I did the interview. It'll come out whenever this does. But yeah, it's it's fascinating, and she can speak to any number of botanists that have only gotten more sensitive over time to repeated exposure. Oh. Um, so some of the most famous ones besides the mango, the cashew pistachio, we've already covered, poison ivy, poison oak, and poison sumac. Now, if you're a United States botanist or in North America doing botany, they are toxicodendron. But if you are a European, specifically uh, certain people that work at Q, they still lump them into roosts. There's a lot of taxonomic uncertainty, but it, <laughs> it would behoove you to familiarize yourself with some of the ones you're more likely to encounter.
0: Behoove. Nice. Behoove. behoove. <laughs> yeah.
2: These quarantinis are doing a number on my vocabulary.
1: <laughs> I love that your vocabulary gets better after the quarantinis, because <laughs> yeah, mine get, does not.
2: I get more brave in trying to use those words. But <laughs> But as a group of plants, uh, as you already mentioned, urushiol is a suite of compounds, not just one. Mm-hmm. And when you think about what is this doing for the plant, uh, you know the first thing I always go to is defense. You know, it's very easy to see why we would touch this, get a rash, and be like, "I'm never messing with that plant again." But I want to go back to something Aaron said about the delayed reaction yeah, does it make sense for a plant to have an anti-herbivore defense compound that takes a day or two to kick in?
1: Well, also, isn't it only like humans and some primates that have a response to this? So like yes. herbivores don't yes, care.
2: Yes. For all intents and purposes, uh, this plant only affects us and some of the higher primates. Nothing else is affected by it with this allergy. It's it is by no means an anti-herbivore defense. In fact, everything from birds to goats to deer to mice and numerous insects will feed on the foliage and fruits of this plant of all of these plants with little to no problem.
1: What the heck, Matt? Yeah, it's bizarre.
2: We'll get there. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's very bizarre, and that's what's really interesting is to think about how. Bad, our reactions can be to it, and and it's really just us. We're very much alone in this.
0: <laughs> it's just but, us, of course. So humans I like, would name it poison ivy, too. Then. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What would a bird name it? What would a deer like, name it? Delicious, delicious berries. fatty berries.
2: Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, as you can imagine, the complications with the human immune response. It makes it a uh, very difficult group of plants to study in a lot of great detail, at least for that third that produce the this suite of compounds. So this mm-hmm. is a woefully understudied uh, sort of biochemical ecology, we'll mm-hmm. say. Um, but there has been enough interest in it, obviously because of how much it affects us, that there have been hints and, and insights gained over time. And some of the best hints as to what the function of these compounds are come from where they're produced. And now it's a big family. It's a lot of plants that have it, but you got to figure we're really only look at the ones that, you know, we either are more likely to come in contact with or that we have some sort of economic use for. So most of the work has been done in poison ivy, mangoes, cashews, and pistachios. Mm -hmm. So if you look at at least poison ivy, most of the uricerol is contained within the young leaves, the young stems, the bark, and the fruits. Hmm. And interestingly enough, it's not found in the pollen, and poison ivy pollen happens to be a surprisingly common ingredient, or at least component, of most commercial honey. Oh. Yeah. So we'll get into the ecological benefits of the species in a little bit, but... When they looked at uricharol's function in poison ivy, they found that uricharol and its derivatives are really effective at killing certain types of pathogenic fungi.
0: Oh, awesome. Hence yeah. the, early, the early growth or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. So
2: young leaves, young stems, things that are really tender, very susceptible to infection. Oh, now, wow. it's also been found, but in a lab setting. This is important. This is not found on the plant itself to be really good at preventing biofilms and killing ah. most, a lot of bacteria. Oh. So you think about all of the surface area of a plant is ripe for the taking in terms of being uh, you know, a, a growth medium for bacteria. They don't wash themselves regularly and you know, they've got a lot of pores that are open to the environment. So yeah. anything that can be present in a plant that can help prevent uh, detrimental microbes from finding their way into the plant is probably a good thing.
1: Huh.
2: Yeah. Now, in mangoes, it's really interesting because the urichurals are highly concentrated in resin ducts specifically, and most importantly, around the fruits, which is why a lot of people will get a reaction to eating mangoes, especially if you're getting mangoes that have gone feral. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. So it is present in the domesticated ones, but if you get them off the street from a seed that's just germinated, you are really risking it. I mean, your best bet is to avoid the skin because that's where it's concentrated. But even if you cut into a mango, what gets on the knife and then travels into the fruit can be enough mm, to really yep. mess your day up or week wow. up, I should say.
0: I have a question if you're ready about distribution of the plants.
2: Okay. Yeah, yeah. We'll go there before I get into some of the interesting mango results.
0: Okay. Um. So does urushiol or like the... Amount of urushiol or anything like that? Does that follow any sort of geographic distribution in terms of latitude or in terms of, like, rainfall or in terms of, like, predator or Mm. herbivore density or whatever?
2: That's a really cool question to ask, and I don't know the full picture of it, but I will say that it is very much present in both tropical and temperate representatives, but... I will get into something in a little bit uh, dealing with climate change (gasps) and CO2 that uh, kind of lends to this. But no, I think overall, it's a compound that's very much found in varying degrees in different tissues, maybe by latitude and and habitat. But, um, you know, poison ivy is going to affect you just as much as pistachios or mangoes are.
0: Right. Okay. So, like, it's not like, oh, this poison oak is more, contains more arushiol than poison ivy. It could be this leaf on this plant contains more arushiol. Like, there's more variability within the plant than there is across plant species. Okay. So,
2: especially like toxicodendron, uh, poison ivy, I don't know too much about poison oak just because I grew up on the East Coast, but uh, it is a highly variable species. And Mm -hmm. anytime you talk about plant uh, chemistry, you know it varies with genetics and populations so right. it's like okay. as my old botany professor say it's like good dope and bad dope you never know what you're gonna get
1: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> variation within a species it's important Um, so in mangoes, a lot of the urichurals are concentrated in these resin ducts. So you can picture them as sort of like veins, vascular tissue that goes through the the rind of the mango and is just chock full of these compounds. Mm. And what they found is that in plantations, uh, or any sort of commercial production for mangoes, um... The more dense the resin ducts are in the tissue, the less the mangoes are affected by flies, ovipositing flies looking to lay their eggs on the fruit. And what what happens is when the female fly lands on and and sticks her ovipositor into the tissue to lay her eggs, she ruptures those resin ducts, and it just floods the egg chamber, killing the resulting eggs and larvae. Stop it. Yeah. That's really
1: interesting. That is awesome.
2: And so on top of all of that, the other part of it too is just antimicrobial. So really, I think the impetus, the evolutionary pressures that really uh, set Yerusharal on its trajectory and why we see so many different variations within this class of compounds has to do with antimicrobial properties, infectious you know, disease-causing microbes from fungi to bacteria and everything in between.
1: Oh my gosh, my brain is reeling. This is fascinating.
2: Yeah. So absolutely has nothing to do with us. In fact, We were up in Indiana dunes over the summer, and there was a poison ivy covered in sawfly larvae that were just devouring it. And birds eat it like crazy. I mean, you know, they say leaves of three, let it be. Let it be for a lot of reasons. Let it be because you probably don't want to get uh, what Aaron came down with and just be itchy, scratchy, having a horrible time. But it's also extremely ecologically important, at least toxicodendron radicans, what we know as poison ivy, and I'm sure it extends to poison oak, and it definitely extends to poison sumac, although you really have to work to find true poison sumac. Huh. Um, they say you have to find a high-quality bog, you have to trip and fall, and the first plant you will grab will be poison sumac. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but they are ecologically extremely important. Their foliage feeds many different species of animal, especially insects, um, There's lots of leaf and stem-boring insects. There's lots of caterpillars of numerous different species of butterflies and moths. The flowers are visited by a wide variety of insects for pollination, mainly by beetles, actually. It is primarily a beetle-pollinated species, but bees will find it, too. Uh, and the fruits, oh my God, are the fruits of poison ivy so extremely valuable? They're white. <laughs> they're one of the few species that has a white fruit, and you can guarantee if it's a white fruit, at least in the east, you probably should leave it alone. So, but they're really high in fat, and they happen to appear around the same time that all of our migratory songbirds are making their way oh, south, and so a... it is a vital component of their diet as they migrate south. And so if you have this plant on your landscape, it's not hurting you. You're not going to come into contact with it easily. Consider leaving it. It's got beautiful fall foliage. uh, Mm It turns very red and contrasted with the white berries. It's really, really pretty. And, you know, birds disperse the fruit. That's how it gets around. So it's really important for them. But one of the most interesting things is what's going on specifically with poison ivy and climate change and they used, have you heard of the FACE experiments? The uh, free air CO2 mm-hmm. enrichment? Yeah, where they basically set out all of this CO2 enrichment stuff. It's waste product CO2 from, it was going to find its way into the atmosphere one way or another. But they concentrate it in an area and look at how plants respond. So it's a way of trying to study what elevated CO2 levels are going to do for plants. Well, someone got it in their head to see what was going to happen with poison ivy in the context of CO2 enrichment. And what they found is that poison ivy really loves extra CO2 hanging around in the atmosphere. Uh... So CO2 enrichment increased photosynthesis in poison ivy by 77%. What? I just want you to sit with that. 77% (laughs) more photosynthesis.
1: Wow. Oh, boy. So
2: not only did that lead to better performance, it led to bigger plants overall. They made better seeds that were more likely to germinate and grow just as extreme or more than the parents that produced them. But the most alarming of all is the production of this triene congener of Euricherol increased by 153%. (laughs) What? Which is the most allergenic form of Euricherol.
0: As if we needed one more reason to slow climate change down. To slow climate change, we're gonna be taken over by mutant poison ivy (laughs) that makes the most allergenic.
1: And it's it's,
2: sadly it's a double whammy because not only are we increasing the amount of CO two in our atmosphere, we're creating through habitat destruction, especially of forests, a lot of edge habitat. So when you Mm. fragment a forest into tiny little chunks all of those edges suddenly present a ton of really perfect niches for poison ivy to grow Mm -hmm. so it's this double whammy of we're increasing its niche availability which increases its numbers on the landscape but we're also making it extremely potent and vigorous in the process wow which is good news for ecology in a lot of (laughs) ways when you think about all of the ecological impacts but in terms of like you know, us being outside and enjoying being in the woods. Which again, I'm not sensitive, but I also don't want to push my luck for the reasons mm. you mentioned. Uh, it's a really interesting thing, and and there is some speculation that it's because you know, with CO two enrichment, you get warmer temperatures, you tend to get higher humidity more spikes, fungi and things, Co- yeah. could result in more fungi, bacterial infections, those sorts of things. So fascinating, man. Yeah, it's it's a really cool group of plants, but. Like I said, woefully understudied uh, for obvious reasons. And and in talking with Dr. Pell, she desperately wants grad students to work on this stuff. It's just kind of hard sell.
1: <laughs> so if you're interested, listeners, check <laughs> yeah. out Matt's episode on of plants, and then you can get all of that info.
2: Yeah and and you know in botany and in ecology it's easy to think that like all the low hanging fruit have been taken you know all those early naturalists took all the fun easy stuff there's this is proof that this is yeah there's areas that are ripe for exploring so yeah. curious brave minds
1: <laughs> and then why in humans does that same compound produce this hypersensitivity response that's so
2: yeah. bizarre there, it's strange
0: are there like analogs of it are are there compounds that are super similar where it's just sort of this coincidental like oh bad luck for humans that's what i'm wondering
2: yeah i think it's just kind of bad luck you know there's a lot of things that can be said of just kind of happenstance like people will talk like Take THC, for instance. Cannabis is not producing that because it has the psychoactive effect on us. We just happen to have receptors that are receptive to it, you know? Yeah. And so there's a lot of questions about sort of the happenstance of these evolutionary dynamics, this trajectory that takes a species or clade of organisms in one direction. And humans are just so apt to try and experiment and move around the globe (laughs) that we're bound to come into contact with this stuff on some point. And sometimes it affects us. Sometimes it doesn't.
0: Yeah evolution does not have a goal or an endpoint or Mm-mm. a plan there is no agency
2: <laughs> and and that's it's what's so cool to think about is just when you talk to even experts on this they're like yeah I, I think it's just unfortunate for us mm-hmm. yeah oops. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> oops how cool oops. Yeah. <laughs> oh man
2: but yeah uh, my recommendation is don't eat anything you can't identify and learn learn the species that can affect you Aaron <laughs>
1: If these if these episodes don't convince people to learn at least the species around them that can affect them, it's, I don't know what
0: will.
2: Nothing and nothing. Maybe what are the we pictures of my that? poison
0: ivy rash will convince you. There we go.
2: <laughs> and hopefully, my mother's if she's feeling
0: yes.
2: willing.
1: Oh, this was a fun episode. This was,
2: this was so. Thank you for interesting. Uh, thank you for your suffering, Aaron. That inspired it all. <laughs>
0: Um, it, it, I cannot say that there is anything that is worth that suffering, but this was a very nice little consolation. Fair (laughs) enough. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, But no, Uh, I, this was super fun. There's, what a, what a weird group of plants. What a weird group of plants. Yeah. Well, um, should we do sources? Let's. Sure. Okay so like you aaron i found a couple of papers that were super great for the history um, that kind of like laid it all out so one was called by rostenberg from 1955 an anecdotal biographical history of poison ivy and then from um by vogel from 2000 oriental lacquer poison ivy and drying oils And then finally, there was an article on sciencehistory.org called No Ill Nature, The Surprising History and Science of Poison Ivy and Its Relatives. And that was actually a really um, interesting and great article. It had like tons of information in it. So um, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I
1: already mentioned my main one by Gladman in 2006 was really great. But I do have a few others that I will certainly post on our website, thispodcastwillkillyou.com.
2: Yeah, so I had a bunch of sources because I had to kind of search high and low for people <laughs> that have braved this, but uh, some of the bigger ones I pulled from, I will obviously send you the links for all of the ones, were Resin Ducts in the Mango Fruit, a Defense System by Joel, 1980. Uh, there was Beetle Interactions with Poison Ivy and Poison Oak by China, 2005. Insects Feeding on Poison Oak, Roost Toxicodendron by Howden et al., 1991. And the climate change one was Biomass and Toxicity Responses of Poison Ivy to Elevated Atmospheric CO2 by Mohan et al. 2006.
0: Nice. Awesome. Yeah, we will post all of these references and links to them on our website, thispodcastwillkillyou.com. So if you want to do some continued reading, check it out there. Definitely. Yeah. Yay. Well... Thank you, Matt, so much for coming on and doing this really fun episode. Like this is just just like one of the most fun, I think. It was nice and relaxing, weirdly. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Even though you had to relive your darkest days, Aaron. I mean, honestly, like time is meaningless at this point.
2: In the year. It's all the same.
0: 2020 Um, and also if if my suffering can in some way alleviate the uh, suffering of others and like prevent their exposure to poison ivy that's great that's great how noble
2: of you (laughs) Uh, thank you both so much as always for having me it is a wonderful blast to talk with you and I always learn so much Uh, check me out in defense of plants podcast in defense of plants on all major social media outlets if you google it you will find me uh, stay tuned. A lot of good things over the horizon.
1: Yes, Heck definitely. Yes. If you're not already following Matt on all the things, make sure that you are because
0: it's like, <laughs> oh my gosh, it's incredible. Uh, the Insta, oh. I'll say again, is oh yes, incredible, <laughs> just the best, beautiful. Truly. I have a lot of
2: fun with it. <laughs>
0: oh, you do a great. But job. thank
2: you for what you two are doing. You you are putting out just such wonderful and and meaningful content. So thank you again, oh. and your fans are just fantastic. I love interacting with them. So. <laughs>
0: The best. They put the fan in fantastic.
2: Oh, oh
0: that's so good.
2: Oh no. That's all right, so I'm done. No.
0: <laughs> oh boy. Well, thank uh, you to Bloodmobile for providing the music for this episode and all of our episodes. And thank you to you, Fantastic listeners. Fantastic fans. <laughs> oh, I seriously,
2: won't rub poison though. ivy on any of you. <laughs>
1: seriously thank you so much for listening we love getting to make this podcast thank you so much
0: yes well um until next time wash your hands you
2: filthy filthy animals animals. (laughs) (laughs) sorry i didn't mean to step on your toes I i loved it You're going to be itchy, kids. You're just going to be itchy.